Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagam Radian, and hope uh, everybody is having a very happy Veterans Day uh, and also a belated happy birthday to uh, the United States Marine Corps. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. With the future of democracy and abortion on ballots nationwide, voters rejected extreme Republican candidates halting a widely expected GOP blowout. Republicans might win the House, but factionalism will make it ungovernable, experts say, while Democrats could retain the Senate, depending on the December runoff between Raphael Senator Raphael Warnock and his challenger, Herschel Walker. Uh, It is being characterized as the best midterm outcome for a sitting president since the 1930s, sending a reassuring signal to allies and a worrying signal to hopefully to autocrats worldwide that American democracy uh, is strong and a repudiation of former President Donald Trump, given candidates he backed lost prompting even longtime allies to turn on him, including the New York Post. But while his higher profile candidates lost, others at the state and local level won, and Trump's brand of rhetoric remains ingrained in the Republican Party and continues to be parroted by House and Senate members. New York Republican Elise Stefanik, the number three GOP leader in the House, yesterday urged Trump to again run for president, something uh, the former president is considering. Still, the outcome encouraged allies that Trump and Trumpism are in decline and political normalcy may yet return to Washington. In the meantime, Democrats will race to approve spending measures as well as a debt ceiling increase before a new Congress is gaveled in in January. Russia evacuated Kherson, the gateway to Crimea, as the White House urges Kiev to remain open to negotiations. And the Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Mark Milley presses Ukraine to negotiate an end to the war to solidify its battlefield gains. President Biden and China's Xi Jinping will meet next week on the sidelines of the G20 meeting in Bali amid rising tensions fueled by Beijing's increasingly muscular rhetoric uh, and Washington's steadily tougher response to it. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, who holds the Asia-Pacific Security Chair of the Hudson Institute Think Tank, E.J. Harold, a former NATO Deputy Assistant Secretary General for Defense Investment and retired United States Army Colonel, who now leads the International Institute for Strategic Studies Washington office. Office, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, uh, welcome. Great to have you back on. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control uh, coverage. And our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting uh, was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran. And check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, uh, who uh, takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Everybody, welcome. Uh, And uh, sorry for that very long introduction. Michael, uh, only in Washington can a defeat uh, or a smaller margin of uh, victory be portrayed as a victory. Um, The reality is Democrats are likely to lose the House. Uh, They may also lose the Senate, depending on the outcome of the Warnock-Walker race. Um, So, Democrats may lose both houses. I appreciate the robust spin that's put on this, uh, uh, you know, and I appreciate that as much as the next man. 
but walk us through the results, where things are going and why you are uh, and others are as optimistic as they are. Because I look at this a little bit more like Tom Friedman uh, in the New York Times. We dodged the arrow this time, but everything is really not good. Well, you and I both <clears throat> read that Tom Friedman article uh, differently. But look, uh, we don't know who uh, is going to win the Senate or the House uh, at this point. Uh, all right. I mean, I got a text message last night from a congressman in the Republican leadership who in the House who said it's pretty bad when it's Thursday night and we're still we still haven't hit 218. Uh, so let's start with the House. Let me, let me go to the Senate. You know, as of this morning, uh, there are 211 seats that are in the Republican column and 198 seats that are in the Democratic column and 26 that are still yet to be called. Uh, now, as of Wednesday night, uh, my conversations with Republican leadership, I've been talking to a lot of congressmen, a lot of staff. Um, they felt that their majority would be 10 seats, so 228 uh, to 207. 24 hours later, last night, uh, House Republican leadership uh, that I talked to felt that their majority would be less than five seats. As of this morning, they think that their majority at best will be three seats, uh, which would be 221. There is still an outside chance the Republicans do not take the House. If I had to put money on it, I think that they will. But there's an outside chance that they still do not. Uh, as far as the Senate is concerned, uh, right now, there are 48 seats in the Democratic column and 49 in the Republican column. One of those 49 is the Alaska race, uh, where incumbent Lisa Murkowski is being challenged by another Republican, uh, Kelly Shabaka. Uh, Kelly Shabaka is ahead right now, but when ranked choice voting is all said and done, Lisa Murkowski will win that race. But uh, I'm you know, pretty confident that Arizona is going to stay in Democratic hands, which would put that at 49, 49. I think Mark Kelly is going to win. And I'm talking to both Democrats and Republicans about uh, Nevada. And there's a lot of thought out there that Nevada still could stay in Democratic hands, that Cortez Masto is going to pull this off. And that would put them at 50. And that would put them in charge, meaning that the runoff in Georgia uh, wouldn't matter at the end of the day. You know, still, it would matter in the sense of making it 51, 49. But the Democrats would still be in control. And Warnock came out ahead of Walker. And I think Walker would have an uphill battle in that runoff. So I, if I had to put money on it, I'd say that the Senate stays in Democratic hands. Um, so, you know, I think that, that there are implications for the defense committees here because some of our members are in tough races or have lost. Right. The most striking of all this is Ken Calvert from California who is poised to be the chairman of the Defense Appropriations Subcommittee. Right now, he's a ranking member of that subcommittee in the House. Um, that race has still not been called yet. Uh, last, uh, as of, uh, yesterday, he was behind. This morning, it looks like he's slightly ahead. But that race may not even be decided until uh, next week. On the House Armed Services Committee, it looks like only one of the Democratic incumbents lost. That was Elaine Loria. Uh, right. The Jared Golden race in Maine is still yet to be called, but people feel that he is going to pull it out. Uh, but yet still next year, we'll see some big changes on the committee because of members that did not run for election or members that will go to other committees. I think we'll see probably anywhere from seven to nine new uh, Republican members of the Armed Services Committee and uh, upwards of maybe around six uh, on the Democratic side. On the Senate Armed Services Committee, if Mark Kelly wins, which I expect he will, um, that stays the same. And Roger Wicker now will become the new ranking member because Senator Inhofe did not run for re-election. And on the uh, Senate Appropriations Committee, uh, Patty Murray uh, won her race. So she will now 
succeed uh, Pat Leahy to be the chairman of the full committee. And Susan Collins will be the ranking Republican or the chairman if the Senate, if the Republicans do win. Um, and then we have Lisa Murkowski, who's on defense appropriations as well, which I think she still will remain. So very little change, I think, on, on the Senate side, more change on, on the House side. You mentioned uh, leadership races next week. How do you have leadership races when you don't know who's controlling either body? Or is this expected to be resolved by the time they convene? That's an excellent question. And I was talking to some leadership folks about that uh, the wee hours this morning. Uh, you know, especially what are the rules about who gets to vote in these leadership elections if their races aren't called yet? Um, but the, the Democrats are not going to hold their leadership elections until the week of November 30th. The Republicans are going to hold theirs next week regardless. And a lot of it is a question of timing. The more time they leave out there to not have these races, the more discord will be sowed within the ranks and more challengers could pop up. Uh, so McCarthy wants to get this done quickly. Uh, now, his real race is until January 3rd. And there's a lot of concern now if the majority really is three to five seats. Will McCarthy had the votes uh, for speaker on January 3rd? So that becomes a wild card and can upset the apple cart with leadership races all over again uh, in January. Uh, but right now, you know, uh, uh, Steve Scalise is unchallenged for majority leader. Right. The real race is with the whips race between Jim Banks uh, from Indiana, who's on the Armed Services Committee, Tom Emmer, who ran the NRCC, and Drew Ferguson, who's the chief deputy whip. Um, Tom Emmer uh, was quoted in the Washington Post uh, today saying that... Um, <clears throat> House GOP should be extremely happy with Tuesday night's results. That quote is being sent around like crazy today. People are cannot understand how tone deaf that is and right. are very unhappy. There's a lot of finger pointing going on. There's finger pointing at Tom Emmer at the NRCC. There's a lot of finger pointing at Kevin McCarthy uh, for his leadership pack, spending uh, resources in districts that we shouldn't have spent it in. But the one thing I will say about leadership, it looks like for the, that there will be a lot of armed services people in the House leadership. Lisa McLean, who's on armed services, is most likely going to be the conference secretary. Mike Johnson, who's on armed services, will be the vice chairman of conference. Elise Stefanik, you mentioned earlier, will be the conference chair. And Jim Banks possibly uh, could be the whip. So for the first time ever, we'll have a lot of defense folks in the Republican leadership. Um, and I, I've got my money on Jim Banks uh, because uh, for, for a whole variety of, uh, of reasons. Um, talk to, give us a quick update uh, on uh, the lame duck uh, session, uh, even though that's not an accurate term, uh, but uh, where we are on NDAA on appropriations, right? I mean, we're going to need a continuing resolution uh, and then um, a debt ceiling uh, deal uh, as well, right? So how does this all play out? Okay. Let me, and after we talk about this, I think we should spend a little time talking about what a Republican House would mean for for defense, too, because uh, that would come next. Well, feel feel free to throw it in, because, right, I mean, it's 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 expected that it is going to be an ungovernable coalition that's that may well embarrass itself, uh, thereby improving Democratic prospects in 24. I don't know if I fully believe that. Uh, but uh, anyway, take it away. So I, I met with some members of the House um, leadership yesterday, and they're, they're starting to figure out their game plan uh, for defense and national security. And they readily admit that they cannot pass an NDAA or probes bills without Democratic support. Uh, and they, they, they have over 50 members of the Republican conference voted against uh, NDAA and defense appropriations uh, last year. So the, as far as the Pentagon budget goes, they still feel that these numbers are going to continue to go up, but they still want to look for places in the defense budget where they can uh, make some cuts. Uh, you know, Mike Rogers, who you know is poised to be the new chairman of Armed Services, had you know said even before the election a narrow GOP majority would just be a disaster, you know, for their agenda. And, and he's right. But I think you know defense has been very bipartisan. It will continue to be so. I think we'll continue to see 
uh, increases, but I think they'll be much, much smaller. Uh, now, the Republican ma majority in the House, if there is one, wants to establish a select committee on China. Uh, so, and they want that to be very bipartisan. Uh, and they want to take a look at a lot. They're still trying to figure out the jurisdiction be dramatic. It'll be looking at the pharmaceutical industry. They'll be looking at the origins of COVID-19. They'll be looking at our supply chain. Um, so that you know, remains to be seen how that will come together. Uh, as far as Ukraine goes, uh, that's another subject that come, came up and that I know will come up probably later on the podcast. Uh, McCarthy's folks uh, have made clear what I've said on previous podcasts, that they continue to support uh, militarily Ukraine. Uh, the question that will arise is, other funds that go to Ukraine outside of the military aid and whether our European allies are gonna step up and help on, on those fronts as well. Um, they will be holding a lot of oversight investigations, right? You know, whether it's a one seat majority or a 40 seat majority, uh, they're gonna be in control of these of oversight investigations. So the Armed Services Committee, Foreign Affairs Committee, the Intelligence Committee and the House Oversight Committee all plan to hold hearings on the withdrawal from Afghanistan. So that is not gonna be uh, fun to watch. Um, and the culture wars will continue within armed services as well, you know, efforts to roll back the COVID-19 uh, mandates, fighting policies that they right. consider to be woke, uh, efforts to kill the Pentagon's uh, shift uh, toward renewable energies, and also blocking uh, Pentagon paying for women to, to transport to get abortions. So those will be uh, challenging, but th those will be the, the main things that will, uh, the Republicans will be looking at on national security in the beginning. And debt ceiling increase, you think, is going to fly through uh, as long as Repub as long as Democrats uh, are in control. So here's here's the problem that we face in the lame duck. Right. We've said all along that you know, we expect to have an omnibus in the lame duck and that we needed to wait till after the election to get a budget deal. Right. Well, the election's not over. You know, so right. without knowing who's in control that may really impede their ability to get a budget deal. Without a budget deal, there's no omnibus vehicle to, to throw a debt ceiling on, all those other things that we, that we want to put on. So this is a major uh, monkey wrench in the works. I still feel confident that they are going to get this done, uh, but no way do I feel they'll get it done by the 16th. I think we'll come up to the wire at least to Christmas and possibly even between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, but I think that there's incentive on both sides, not only to clear the decks, on appropriations and on the bus, but also to, to get the debt ceiling away too, and not have that hang over their head until next year. I, look, it, as long as, as long as they have power, they should do, they should use it because they don't know what's going to happen when a new Congress is gaveled in. Right? Well, that, well, that's exactly right, and that's what Chuck Schumer is where his head is, and as a result, he has announced he, he has announced it yet, but it, the team said he's preparing to pull the NDAA off the floor next week. All right, just so because they are empowered to get the things passed they want to get passed, including getting their judges uh, confirmed. Through the Senate. So exactly. NDAA is not going to see floor time in the Senate. It's gone straight to conference and the conference has been working on behind the scenes. It'll probably be wrapped up uh, next week uh, besides the big four uh, meetings, which uh, will begin next week when the members come back. Um, I want to uh, go around the horn uh, with everybody uh, now. Uh, Dove, uh, start us off. Uh, your take as somebody who's been uh, in consistent opposition, not just to Trump, but Trumpism, as well as being uh, an ardent believer in both sanity and bipartisanship. Uh, all I will say is the Republican Party has has somewhat mastered crazy. Trump was a manifestation of that broader crazy. Uh, and, you know, is, you know, he still has a continuing uh, appeal uh, broadly. He issued a, a statement uh, aligned with his normal degree of crazy and childishness where he went after Ron DeSantis, the Florida uh, governor. Um, you know, 
as Tom Friedman rightly wrote, we dodged uh, the arrow this time, but everything is still not okay. Your sense on where we are and where we're going uh, politically. And then I'm going to turn to both EJ and Patrick uh, and get your guys' senses on how our allies and partners worldwide uh, responded to this. Go ahead, Dove. First of all, uh, I'm not as pessimistic as Tom is. Uh, I think that the statement that uh, the pres former president put out shows how desperate and frightened he is. And I actually want to quote something from it because uh, he has this paragraph in there about DeSantis saying the fake news, and I'm quoting here, the fake news asks him if he's going to run if President Trump runs. And he says, I'm only focused on the governor's race. I'm not looking into the future. Well, in terms of loyalty and class, that's not really the right answer. Um, going after DeSantis is a really dumb political move. He, right he now. should be commenting on class. <laughs> well, there is. Go that. ahead. Uh, it's a stupid political move. And I think it's going to alienate not just the moderate Republicans who are already alienated uh, and the independents who are already alienated, but even some of the more right wing Republicans who think that Ron DeSantis is their great hope for the next uh, couple in the next couple of years. So I'm not as pessimistic as uh, Tom is. Uh, and uh, I, I, if you look at some of the people that Michael was talking about, if Ken Calvert uh, becomes uh, the the chairman of uh, defense appropriations, and even if he's ranking, he has for years uh, wanted to go after the size of the office of the secretary of defense staff. Uh, and generally the defense civilians. And he's going to have a lot more clout unless, of course, he loses the race, which I don't think he will. Uh, but he'll have a lot more clout in that regard. And that's something that I think the Pentagon's going to worry about. Uh, Roger Wicker, whether he's chairman or ranking, uh, is a very strong supporter of, of the Navy, of a bigger Navy and pretty much uh, the Navy line. And so, of course, with whether Jack Reed is chairman or ranking, and he, of course, is a supporter of the Navy, you'll see more push in that direction simply because Jim Inhofe, the outgoing ranking, was not really that interested at all. Uh, and then, of course, you're going to have Susan Collins, who comes from a big Navy state, uh, who's now going to be uh, defense appropriations. So you're going to see a big push against where the Pentagon wants to go on the kind of spending it, it should uh, lay out for the Navy and the direction the Navy should go. Uh, one thing, of course, uh, as, as Michael alluded to, uh, there's no way you're going to get much uh, support for defense without the Democrats. Uh, the smaller the majority, uh, the Republican majority in the House, the more power the Freedom Caucus has. One good thing, though, is that if Jim Banks becomes the uh, whip, you know, he worked with Seth Moulton, uh, who was uh, at the time, of course, who still is, I guess, until January uh, on the Democratic side, working on defense issues. They issued a report together. Banks knows a lot about defense. And so that, I think, is important. Uh, one thing that wasn't mentioned by Michael in terms of the uh, lame duck is I suspect that uh, the Democrats will push through some more funding for Ukraine uh, during the lame duck, simply because uh, nobody knows how the Republicans will come out on that. The same Republicans who voted to cut the defense budget, by and large, with uh, 68 of them, didn't want to help Ukraine anymore. Uh, and remember, spending once money is voted, uh, it takes time. And basically, if they vote some money, additional funds for Ukraine in December or, or late November, whatever, before January 3rd, 
uh, you'll see that money spending out for eight months. And by that time, I do think there will be some kind of uh, denouement, if you will, uh, as to where the Ukraine war finally ends up. Uh, and lastly, uh, I was just in London uh, speaking to people in the government, former government officials, quite senior folks, and they were terrified about two things. One was where the congressional elections would go. And the second, of course, was Trump. Uh, the first one, I think people are much more reassured now over there, at least for the next couple of years. Uh, and with Trump, who knows? Uh, indeed. EJ, um, thanks for your uh, patience. And Pat Patrick, thanks for yours. Uh, obviously, we've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, EJ, how are your European friends responding to the election uh, outcome? And what is it? what message do you think it sends uh, internationally? Well, I think the uh, the obvious answer is that it's mixed and it's uh, the old question of uh, where you stand depends on where you sit. Those who are uh, fans of uh, Trump and his policies are uh, looking at this and saying, well, you know, he held on to uh, a number of key seats and it looks like he's going to get uh, the result that he wanted with the House. Uh, others are saying as you you use the term uh, dodge the arrow, uh, it it it's a uh, it's a good day for democracy that we don't end up with a uh, a, a radical shift uh, to uh, Republican radicalism and uh, dominance in uh, in both uh, houses of the uh, the Congress. Again, it's too soon to tell because we don't have the final results. And uh, I think uh, uh, the way that Patrick or Michael has uh, laid out the uh, uh, the likely uh, outcomes uh, makes a lot of sense. And we'll end up with something that is uh, still worrisome for our European allies, but uh, also reassuring in the sense that uh, there's not going to be a dramatic change in our foreign policy, uh, at least uh, not from the administration point of view. And so, you know, the real question is, can we maintain the support for Ukraine longer term uh, in the face of uh, obvious fractures that have been leaking out into the press in the last couple of weeks before the elections. Patrick, uh, your uh, sense and how this is being uh, received. Uh, I thought that it was interesting. Uh, right. Tom in his article mentioned uh, what Xi Jinping told uh, Joe Biden. Uh, the president mentioned this when he was at uh, the Naval Academy commissioning a graduation and, and commissioning ceremony uh, where he said, you know, Xi Jinping told him that democracies won't survive in the 21st century. Autocracies are the way to go. Uh, because it takes you too long to make decisions, right? Democracies don't move fast enough, uh, which I think was um, exactly in line with what, you know, she would tell somebody like Joe Biden, who, you know, more than somewhat believes in democracy, right? Uh, give, us, give us your sense on uh, how uh, folks across the Asia Pacific are responding. Well, it's early to, to say exactly how they're all responding. I'm just off to Asia tomorrow. But I think uh, the first reaction is that this will help President Biden as he flies into the region um, for summit meetings in Phnom Penh uh, and in Bali, Indonesia. Um, and yet he does not have the coronation of Xi Jinping coming out of the 20th Party Congress that uh, just occurred. Um, so, yeah, Xi Jinping can deliver. He can remove uh, his predecessor from uh, the concluding session of the party conference, as we saw with Hu Jintao's removal. Uh, Biden still has to wait for those votes to come in to figure out who will be running the Senate and the House of Representatives. And yet it's a it's a splendid, wonderful uh, act of democracy. And I think uh, our friends and allies in the region uh, will appreciate that. I think they'll be watching very closely, obviously, in the three major conferences that will be happening in Southeast Asia this month in Cambodia, Indonesia, and Thailand. 
uh, for exactly how well the United States does vis-a-vis Xi Jinping and vis-a-vis China, as, as Xi Jinping really is entering, if not his so-called new era of uh, international relations, a term he likes to constantly use. But there is indeed a new push, a new sort of concerted effort on the part of Beijing to vie for the hearts and minds of East Asia. We may see that in some unusual uh, initiatives that come out of uh, Cambodia, um, out of Indonesia, uh, and even out of uh, Thailand at the APEC summit. Uh, indeed. Uh, and we're going to get uh, to more of that uh, in a moment. I want to take the opportunity now, EJ, to go back to you um, and uh, talk a little bit about Ukraine uh, and uh, what we're seeing and obviously some of the messaging we're hearing out of uh, out of Washington. Let's uh, start uh, first uh, with um, Russia's uh, utterly humiliating retreat from Kherson, uh, obviously clearing the way uh, potentially for Ukrainian forces to advance uh, on Crimea. Ukrainian forces at first were afraid that this was just all a Russian trap, but have raised the flag over the cities, uh, over um, uh, Kherson's uh, administrative building, city hall. Um, what does this mean and what's next? Well, the Ukrainian advance on Kherson has been going on for weeks now, and uh, they're, they've been uh, slowly closing down the uh, the Russian position on the uh, the western uh, bank of of the uh, Dnipro River, and uh, with their backs against the river, the troops that are there had uh, had no mo- room to maneuver. So now, the 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 logical decision, although humiliating as it looks, uh, is to uh, put the river as the uh, the barrier between the Russians and the uh, Ukrainians, and yes, they cede some territory, uh, but they uh, they preserve their forces, go back, lick their wounds, rearm, refit, and redeploy. Uh, so this is a a, a, a tactical move that uh, could position them for uh, uh, you know later winter or spring uh, offensive against the Ukrainians. For the Ukrainians. Uh, you know, it, it's a bit of a poison chalice. Yes, they can they can occupy the city, but uh, that city is within range of uh, artillery from the uh, the Russians. So I suspect that they're going to take a bloodying uh, unless they're extremely well dug in or difficult to locate um, in the in the coming weeks. the The real question is how much of a pounding the Ukrainians can give the Russians as they try to remove the 18 to 20,000 troops that are still estimated to be on that uh, uh, western side of the river right. um, because the bridges are down the uh, it's going to have to be uh, you know uh, waterborne uh, evacuation and that begs the question of how much of their heavy equipment they'll be able to take out with them uh, which could also be a boon to the uh, to the Ukrainians. Uh, more equipment, more ammunition, potentially food stocks as well. Uh, these are all uh, welcome uh, gains for the Ukrainians. Um, and let me take you uh, to uh, the issue of the pressure uh, that is, uh, um, well, let me put it this way, right? The White House says that they are not pressuring Ukraine. Uh, they're, you know, Jake Sullivan was clear and said, look, we're backing, as the president has said, we will back Ukraine as long as this takes. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, Sullivan did meet, uh, visit Kiev uh, and urge uh, the Zelensky government to at least be open in negotiation because that would be important. Obviously, Sullivan took that trip when it was expected Republicans would have uh, more of a blowout. Uh, we've seen some demonstrations in European capitals, although continuing the war 
sort of 90% of Ukrainians believe the war should be continued, as well as something like 70% or more uh, of Europeans. Now we have Mark Milley getting out there and saying, hey, you guys better negotiate a solution, strike while that iron is hot, uh, and and uh, let's let's get this conflict behind us, obviously reflecting sort of the Pentagon view. They never really wanted to do Ukraine. They wanted to be more focused on China. This is depleting inventories, uh, right? So you can see this from a joint staff senior military uh, standpoint. Even if I think the administration is right in telegraphing, if we don't act here, we sort of give China, you know, if we don't stop Russia from doing this, you're basically giving uh, or potentially signaling a green light for uh, Beijing to move on Taiwan. Your sense on this messaging, how does it play into the narrative and is are we going to see a negotiated settlement sooner than than later? And if well, so, what does that look like? Yeah, I think that uh, you're correct that uh, uh, Sullivan anticipated the uh, the election result and made the trip when he did uh, to communicate the message to uh, Zelensky that uh, you know be be careful because if the if if the elections go the way we think they're going to go, there's going to be enormous pressure on the administration. Uh, to either reduce support or to press for uh, a, a solution. Uh, so start thinking about what that could look like for you and what you can swallow versus what uh, uh, what people are are suggesting that you have to do. And I th I think that that the messaging from Zelensky that he no longer referred to the removal of Putin as a precondition to negotiation uh, is a signal that that message got through. Uh, but, you know, to the to your point about uh, General Milley, uh, I think the Pentagon is concerned. Uh, you know, we've depleted our stocks quite generously, giving uh, uh, lots of treasure and lots of uh, equipment and ammunition to uh, to the Ukrainian fight. And as everybody's been talking about, the the defense industrial base is slow to respond and tool up to uh, to refill the coffers. So with that potential threat of being unprepared, if something else happens somewhere else, we don't have to be involved in the fight in Ukraine uh, with our troops. The, uh, the mere fact that we've given so much of our uh, stocks to uh, somebody else, along with our European allies who've been uh, emptying their, uh, their cupboards, uh, increases the, the risks of uh, not being ready for a another action somewhere else. And how does this end, do you think? I mean, is this something where uh, a quick negotiation may be in the interest of the Ukrainians, ultimately? You know, I've, I've heard some comments in uh, recent days that uh, despite the public rhetoric about uh, Crimea, that there's a recognition, uh, at least among some in the inner circles in, uh, in Kiev, that uh, Crimea is a lost cause, uh, predominantly a Russian-oriented population in the first instance. And secondly, uh, this has been a, uh, a fait accompli since 2014, and it's unlikely that uh, force of arms by the Ukrainians is going to be sufficient to win and hold uh, Crimea. So there's, there's really little idea that the Ukrainians are going to succeed in pushing the Russians off all of their territory and then negotiate a settlement. I think there's going to come a point where... Their gains have been significant. The Russians have been significantly weakened, that they finally recognize that they can't continue 
uh, waging uh, a such a de depleting and destructive uh, campaign, and that they will be willing to uh, to talk terms. Uh, the question right now is, you know, the the Ukrainians have what they think are reasonable terms. The Russians have posed unreasonable terms intentionally to uh, uh, to to buy time to continue to weaken the uh, the Ukrainians by attacking the population, the infrastructure, and uh, the Ukrainian armed forces. And so there's there comes a point of diminishing returns, and I think right. they're aware of that in Kiev. And I think that the, the, the tone is changing and that, uh, I, you know, be, between now and the end of the year or the beginning, the early beginning of the year, uh, I think we will see some type of negotiations called for. And, uh, obviously it won't be them negotiating with each other. There'll be a proxy or a third party right. or parties, uh, that will help to, uh, to do the negotiations. Patrick, uh, thanks very much. You've been very patient. Uh, I want to start off with uh, the Biden-Xi meeting uh, in uh, Bali uh, and what to expect before uh, we go uh, to uh, the other meetings uh, in uh, Cambodia, Indonesia, uh, as well as uh, Thailand. Walk us through what's reasonable to expect coming out of this summit when both leaders uh, have, you know, even though the United States has made it clear, hey, look, if China changes its aggressive stance, we, you know, think there can be dialogue, we can have progress on a whole bunch of other issues, even as we uh, confront one another, whether on climate and other issues, we've discussed that for some weeks. What, what is, what is, what, what should we expect to see concretely from this meeting? Well, analytically, at first, there are three answers to that question. One of them is, what do the Americans and what did the Chinese take back from the, the summit meeting, the jump ball in Bali? What what does she and Biden take back? Uh, secondly, you know, literally in the leaders' heads, what do they think is the state of play on this geopolitical contest? And then thirdly, and very importantly, what, what does the region think of this set of relations? So the geopolitical tussle that will happen, not just in, in Bali at the summit between Xi and Biden, uh, and then at the G20 meeting, but before that, it's happening right now in Cambodia, where uh, Prime Minister Hun Sen is hosting nine of the 10 Association of Southeast Asian Nations, uh, Myanmar's leader, uh, uh, Min Aung Hong, who was not invited to this meeting, uh, given the conflict there. Um, but Tomorrow and Sunday, you will have the East Asia Summit. You'll have these 18 countries who will be bringing in India and China and Russia and the United States and Japan and Australia into Cambodia. Um, there will be a bilateral meeting between Biden and Hun Sen. That's not trivial. Let's go back, Vago, and remember 10 years ago, the last time Cambodia hosted the East Asia Summit, the main summit of the, of the region, um, you had uh, no communique issued over China's uh, aggression in the South China Sea. Um, and right now, you can be sure that behind closed doors, the Chinese, the Americans, will be pressing Cambodia, the host, to come out not only with their, their preferred communique, but also that ASEAN as a unified block, hopefully, will not accept on uh, the Chinese terms of a South China Sea um, sort of declaration of the parties on, on how to engage uh, on rules of rules of the road. Um, the Chinese are hinting that they will conclude a South China Sea communique. I don't think that's likely to happen. And I think the uh, credit here goes probably in part to the White House for diligently hosting Hun Sen before when they hosted the ASEAN leaders, uh, but also the bilateral meeting that Biden will be having with Hun Sen in Cambodia. 
Um, this is a strongman autocrat, so this is not uh, the favorite of the uh, democracy group, uh, and yet a very important uh, leader because he's chairing the Asai meeting. So by the time you get to, to Bali and you've got the Indonesian president on the world stage hosting the G20 leaders and having all of these other summits happening, um, you'll have had um, some interesting interaction out of Cambodia, including, by the way, I should have mentioned the trilateral meeting uh, among Japan, right. Korea, and the U.S., where they'll enhance, again, uh, their own statements of relations and being strong on North Korea uh, as we wait for that uh, seventh and perhaps eighth nuclear test that North Korea could happen, you know, have at any time, but they've chosen politically not yet to, to choose and, and, and strike yet. Um, but getting ready for that potential uh, test is very important diplomacy. In Bali, at the Xi-Biden summit, expectations are being downplayed. Jake Sullivan tried to lower expectations uh, before the president took off for Sheikh Hosham uh, and uh, Egypt and, and made sure that there was not going to be any kind of deliverable expected out of this meeting, but rather the tone of testing whether Xi Jinping is willing to put a floor into the relationship um, and make sure that they can find some area of cooperation, even though the intensified geopolitical competition over Taiwan continues. And by the way, it is continuing. There's a report that's been uh, floating around about the cost of a Taiwan blockade by China would be about $2.5 trillion a year. Um, and that's a, a credible industry report um, that shows you that even before you get to conflict uh, over Taiwan, the economic reverberations of a, of a blockade would, would be global uh, and, uh, and, and very severe. So that Tussle is going on, and yet back in Southeast Asia, the G20 me meeting uh, next week, um, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday uh, in Bali, will be all about the global economy and making sure that they can uh, pursue their energy security, their food security, um, and a stable uh, economy in light of inflation uh, around the world. Um, and then when you get to Thailand, that's where Vice President Harris is going to be filling in for the United States, leading that APEC summit meeting. I don't expect anything grand out of there, but you can imagine uh, China wanting to use the, the absence of the American president um, to roll out some of their Belt and Road Initiative-like uh, restatements of things that they've invested in, even while they're reducing the actual Belt and Road in investment overall. Um, I'm sure they'll be trying to court those Southeast Asian countries at that third major Southeast Asian hosted conference this month. So there's a real Southeast Asian and Asian moment going on. China is stepping up the diplomacy. U.S. is hoping to be as active as possible. Uh, and, uh, you know, the fact that the election didn't give Biden a set, a major setback uh, is, is a positive, at least. He goes in with some momentum. And uh, Xi Jinping, meanwhile, still has a lot to juggle, even while uh, he is trying to come out of his COVID lockdowns that are still happening in Guangzhou. Uh, in Chongqing, I mean, in Beijing, where they're testing every 24 to 48 hours, every single person in Beijing. I mean, it's incredible what they're still doing with the COVID lockdowns in, in China. And that has a lot of people worried about China's economy going into 2023, whereas the U.S. economy looks like maybe there's some positive news here. Maybe it's going to be coming out uh, of this inflationary cycle and uh, start the things moving. And maybe we can avoid the geopolitical contest from spilling over into hot war that's what will be graded on in the region. Um, I, I know you've uh, got to go uh, in a minute. Um, any on that $2.5 trillion economic price, how much of that in the terms of the global uh, right cost of uh, China blockading Taiwan, how much of that cost boomerangs back on 
China itself? I mean, is there um, you know a good statistic on hey Taiwan, uh, you know, excuse me, hey Beijing, uh, this is what you're in for if you um, take that step. And I have one brief follow up before uh, before you go. Well, I don't know the dollar effect, but I do know just on an issue that you've been thinking about, the semiconductor chip, uh, China is so dependent on Taiwan for what they're getting in terms of semiconductor chips that uh, are integrated into all of their digital economy. So it would be an enormous setback uh, for for the mainland as well. Um, and, uh, you know, depending on the contingency on how Taiwan was 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 being blockaded and wh- whether, you know, China was successfully maybe taking over the, the semiconductor industry, not going to happen exactly because this is an industry that is dispersed. Um, so even though Taiwan is responsible for so much of the manufacturing of the high-end chips, um, so many other aspects of everything from design to packaging uh, happens globally. And China would be in a, a just as big economic pickle, if not bigger, uh, than than Europe, the United States. I would think from a Taiwan contingency, but Taiwan would be the most impacted, obviously. And 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 very briefly, um, this admin, the Biden administration, and uh, EJ, I want to get your brief sense on this as well. The Biden administration has been trying to uh, navigate a judicious uh, course, right? Don't be too shrill on China. Be tough, be consistent, talk about avenues for cooperation uh, that exist. Whereas uh, some Republicans, uh, right, I mean, it's a great opportunity to be shrill, to characterize the administration's approach on China as weak. Just a brief sense from you on um, how that dynamic might be changing, right? As, uh, you know, as as uh, Michael uh, mentioned, right, Republican hearings on China and, and what have you, if, if they take uh, control. Well, again, uh, you know, the, the, the Pentagon, the Biden's uh, administration's Pentagon uh, in the strategy talking about denial of the sharp lunge, uh, the ability to uh, make sure we have the cost imposition means to ensure that the reward risk reward calculus of Beijing, uh, it continues to be on the side of avoiding uh, conflict over Taiwan and making Taiwan more resilient and protecting our critical networks, including things from semiconductors to space. Um, I think that on the Republican side, they're saying, but you're not spending enough money. And so the idea that uh, just because you're asking for a lot of money for the defense budget doesn't necessarily mean you're getting the effects that you're 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 trying to uh, achieve. And I think there is valid, obviously valid criticism there. Um, so and we're going to see this with if as, if the House is led by uh, the Republicans as is probable, it seems. Um, you, you know, you're going to see more of this kind of uh, investigation into the the budget issues. Uh, over how this pivot to Asia, if I can use an old term of the Obama administration, uh, right. is being implemented. And I think people will be watching those numbers. And yet, I think the Biden administration on the diplomatic side, especially going into three Southeast Asian-led uh, conferences, uh, knows that Beijing is playing a game here, right? They're playing a game for hearts and minds in Southeast Asia right now, as they go into Cambodia and Indonesia uh, in Thailand. And they know that the Southeast Asians are very worried about the militarization of this geopolitical contest. If they can convince the region that America is going to be instigating the trouble, um, you know, not China, and that's maybe a big climb, but, but nonetheless, that's what they're trying to, to convince them of. Right. Um, then we're in a we're in a bad position. So we can't overemphasize our military instrument, but we can't underinvest in it either. 
and uh, right, I mean, you know, over history, we've seen how uh, Congress can actually drive an administration too hot, too cold, uh, either way in policy outcomes. Uh, Patrick, thanks very much for joining us. I know you've got to go. Thanks so Thank much. You. Um, EJ, uh, real quick, how does the uh, European uh, dynamic change, right? I mean, Republicans have tended to cry louder about European allies and partners not investing enough. We heard Michael say, and Michael, I'm going to come to you in, in just a second, uh, you know, that Europe is simply not doing enough. N Europe is doing as much as it can. European leader after leader has told me, you know, France is giving as many Caesars as we can give. You guys need to understand we don't have hundreds of these systems uh, like you do. We have dozens of these systems. Uh, so, you know, the contributions we're making in terms of ammunition, right? I mean, very famously, the German army had has three days of munitions. You know, France has like 10 days of munitions, you know, and everybody relies on the United States to sort of make up the difference. Everybody has underinvested in consumables. How do you think the debate changes? And really quickly, uh, Michael, uh, before uh, we wrap this up, and I, I've got to go to Dove to ask about Israel and, and Iran, just want to get your senses really quick on how the nature of some of these debates uh, might actually fundamentally, uh, or at least meaningfully uh, change. Uh, go ahead, EJ, and then Michael. Yeah, I think the uh, the issue for the Europeans has long been uh, they didn't take the United States seriously when uh, the U.S. kept harping on, uh, uh, you know, they're increasing their spending and carrying more of the burden. They've gotten the message. They've been spending more on defense uh, for uh, a number of years now. Famously, the secretary general of NATO uh, congratulated Trump uh, for the uh, uh, the change in the spending patterns of uh, NATO allies. It actually predated uh, Trump. But still, uh, there's there's been a significant increase in allocated monies to defense. The problem has been that Europeans are not spending the money or figuring out how to acquire the things uh, that are needed both to be capable and ready and have the uh, the stocks that are needed to replenish uh, the uh, what's been taken out of the cupboards. Uh, so that's going to be the real the real question. And uh, the NATO uh, industry forum last November brought this out in spades when I was talking with the defense uh, CEOs who said, look, we get that you've got more money. But we're not getting the demand signal that allows us to tool up, prepare and and plan for longer term expenditures. So we know what to produce, how to produce it and when to produce it by. Uh, so there's a there's a uh, a real chicken or the egg problem with uh, with the money and the replenishment of, of capabilities. I think we're simply not doing as good of a job uh, in filling up and refilling our munition stocks uh, because uh, that is a, an actual deterrent tool uh, that we have. Really quickly, Michael, um, you know how do, you know how sharply do you think uh, you know sentiment changes in terms of toughening on on China, uh, toughening on our European partners, and more specifically, actually investing more money in munitions, uh, which is still right, we're still not moving the needle the way we need to move the needle on this. Uh, you know, I agree. And it's always been puzzling to me because I remember when I worked in the Pentagon during the first Gulf War, um, this was, remember, the military was supposed to fight World War III on two weeks notice that the Russians are coming through the fold the gap. We were being notified that we were running out of certain calibers of ammunition after three days of the ground war. Uh, so it's always puzzling me as to why it doesn't take uh, more, more, more on more importance, both within the DOD and Congress. But you know, I think you know, the Biden administration has said that they want to 
work with DOD, uh, with defense industry to uh, sell more weapons abroad to our allies, right? And I think the defense industry recognizes this is a tremendous opportunity because there's so many countries out there that have Russian equipment that either now are not going to want it, won't be able to get spare parts anymore. It's a huge opportunity for us. Um, but part of the problem is the way our process is set up and that we don't get, uh, our, our industry feels it doesn't get a lot of cooperation from the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee has to approve uh, these weapon sales. It's one of the things that Mike McCall has said that he wants to do in the next Congress is work closely with the Armed Services Committee to slash the years-long backlog of, of weapon sales uh, to Taiwan. Uh, and I think when it comes to Ukraine, I don't think we're going to see a slowdown in the military support at all based on the conversations I've had. Uh, there have been some things that have come up in classified briefings with members where members have said things like, wait, our money's going to, to be used for this? And these are things that are non-defense. I think that's where uh, the rub is going to be and whether the Europeans are going to step in uh, and, and take over there as well. But I think part of our problem with, uh, you know, I think EJ was spot on uh, with our industrial base issues. But, you know, I think if, if we're going to be buying less, too, over time uh, to keep our lines open and also to keep our influence in the world, we need to continue to sell more and stay engaged with our partners. And there seems to be this endless fault finding uh, among people on the Hill, especially among the progressives, as to reasons why not to sell a weapon system instead of why to sell a weapon system. And right. if we don't, the Chinese will gladly do it. Fully agreed. Uh, EJ, you have a two-finger uh, Taiwan interjection on Michael's uh, point, as we would say in the think tank world. Go ahead. And then, Dove, I uh, want to very quickly get your, your take on the proxy uh, war between South Korea and North Korea playing out in Ukraine and real quick on Israel and Iran and what we need uh, to know as we're already a little bit over time on the program. Go ahead, EJ. Yeah, the, uh, the, the issue of uh, Taiwan is kind of interesting. You know, there's a, a growing realization that the Taiwanese have been counting so much on the distance of the Taiwan Strait to uh, protect them uh, that they really have not uh, done the, the necessary things to organize themselves for a fight. Uh, so there is very little uh, civil defense uh, or territorial army forces to uh, uh, to help control the population because they believe that they're going to have to, uh, the, the population will stay where they are if there's ever a, uh, an actual engagement. Um, the, uh, the, the self-defense forces can't uh, can't protect the population and uh, repel the invasion. So uh, there's a lot of uh, weaknesses within the Taiwanese system that are that are being overlooked in favor of just selling them weapon systems. And I think that's something worth noting. Uh, indeed, right. I mean, this uh, pressure that some in the United States and even uh, 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 Taiwan's friends uh, keep pointing out, you guys are buying marquee systems as opposed to the things you guys need to make yourself a porcupine uh, and get your domestic act together uh, to improve your preparedness. Although there are some who would disagree with you a little bit, right, EJ, uh, and would say the Taiwanese are doing better on that front. Duff, uh, real quick, talk to us about North Korea, South Korea in uh, Ukraine. Uh what we need to know about Israel and whether or not the Yair Lapid and, and Benny Gantz actually make a coalition government, as some have urged, uh, right? Pinch your nose uh, and do the best for Israel. Uh, and then real quick on Iran. Go ahead. Well, very quickly, um, both Koreas are supporting the opposite sides in, in this war. And as mobility slows down, artillery becomes even more important. And the Russians in particular have been burning through their tubes. It's not just the shells, it's the tubes themselves. And the Ukrainians need them as well. So you've got the South Koreans who say they don't want to sell weapons to Ukraine. So they're doing it uh, via the United States and then shipping them out, uh, shipping 155 uh, howitzers over to, to Ukraine. 
And the North Koreans are pretty much doing the same thing with their weapons. And they, of course, have tons of artillery that's pointed at the South. Uh, they're shipping uh, artillery to the Russians. And so in a way, it's a kind of proxy war. Uh, I would also, we talked about stocks so very, very quickly when I was over in Britain, I was told that if the British had a fight uh, Libya today, they would run out of uh, ammunition in two days. So we're not the only ones who have a stock problem. It's, it's, it's really affecting Western Europe as well. On Israel, uh, Netanyahu has signed up 64 votes. Um, and that includes the extremists. Uh, ben Gvir, the uh, ultra extremist, uh, was at a function yesterday, a remembrance function for Mayor Kahana, who was the who was uh, not just a fascist, but a terrorist and is, was considered that both by Israel and the United States. Ned Price, the State Department spokesman, openly criticized Ben Gvir. It's the first time state has reacted formally to uh, what is going to be part of uh, Netanyahu's coalition. Yes, people would like Gantz uh, and Lapid to join for the sake of Israel. But you know what? Mr. Netanyahu wants to be prime minister. He doesn't want to be undermined. He knows all these people are going to support him. He doesn't know. Uh, he doesn't want to reopen negotiations, which he would have to do with other parties. Uh, but at the same time, these extremists, the 14 or 15 of them are going to blackmail him and basically say, if you don't do what we want, we'll bring the government down and you're going to wind up going to jail. So he's in a tough position. But I think at the moment uh, he'll stick with what he knows, the devil he knows, which is the 64 seats and becomes prime minister again. And uh, very quickly on Iran, the latest. Well, the latest is more of the same. I mean, uh, to my knowledge, the Revolutionary Guard still has yet to step in. It's the besieged. They're sort of uh, uh, semi-official uh, handmaidens that have been shooting at the women and everybody else who's demonstrating. But the demonstrations haven't stopped. And to the credit of the Biden administration, they are speaking out in support of them. And there's not much more you can do at this stage other than uh, beam radio waves in and, and uh, work over the net and try to evade uh, any efforts by the Iranian regime to block those kinds of uh, things from getting through. Uh, and I want to uh, commend the audience to check out Dove's piece, Time to Shut Down All Confucius Insti Institutes, uh, whatever they might be called, and that's uh, in the Hill. Uh, everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hope you all have a great Veterans Day uh, weekend. Uh, and uh, again, a belated happy birthday to the uh, United States Marine Corps. Everybody, thanks so much for joining us.